So let us now turn together and look at Philippians chapters, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. I'll begin reading, however, at verse 4 for our context. Hear now the very word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would apply this word to our lives. That you would show us the path you would have us to go. That you would... Equip us to think your thoughts after you. We ask that you would indeed bless us by your word, by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have been traveling together through this mini-series within the series on Philippians. The seven characteristics of a church that Paul lays out at the end of chapter 3 and throughout chapter 4. And we have reached... Number five, and there is a very real sense and that this fifth characteristic, that is the excellent-minded church, is the crescendo of these seven points. It may even be the climax of this entire letter. It's not a coincidence that this is perhaps one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. It is, after all, a passage that appeals even to those who do not know the Bible from front to back. Those who perhaps haven't even heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of this word about the way in which God's creation works, the way it should work, appeals to us. It appeals to the image of God in us. But even more so for the Christian, it is an application to us of how we are to think and grow biblically. That's what I would like us to see this morning. To be excellent-minded means to have your minds upon excellent things. Not necessarily to have the sharpest mind. Perhaps you're already afraid here, thinking, well, I'm a bit up in years, or I'm just a young one. My mental powers aren't at the peak of where they were or should be. Or perhaps you think, well, I'm better with my hands than I am with arithmetic. But you see, what Paul is calling us here to is not incredible brain power. He is calling us to Christian focus, beginning with the mind and being worked out 
in our lives. And so we will see that first in the call to think biblically. To think biblically. And we'll look at the habit of our thoughts. The object of our thoughts. And then the end or purpose of our thoughts. And then secondly, we will see that we cannot stay merely by thinking about things biblically. We must also grow biblically. Growing biblically is another way to think about discipleship. So focusing our minds and discipleship in the church. Let's look then first at thinking biblically. Our text begins, finally, brothers, and then a string of whatever is clauses. And it almost makes us think that Paul has written this in haste. After all, Paul, don't you know you only need to use one whatever? Whatever is true, just, pure, honorable, lovely. You know, you don't need to keep repeating yourself. But Paul is doing this for a purpose because the first thing that he is addressing here is the habit of our thoughts. The habit of our thoughts. If we are honest with ourselves, we must understand that we have to resist a drawing away of our focus to other things. It is not that we are merely enticed to go look at other things, think about other things, if we don't have uh, a strong will. No, we must realize that we are being constantly bombarded with ideas, images, thoughts. We are constantly being attacked by the television, movies, print media, newspapers, books, neighbors, jobs, There is a constant call upon our focus. Our modern life bombards us, doesn't it? So much so that we have invented a phrase about this that wasn't true 100 years ago. Have you ever found yourself using the phrase 24-7? No one thought of doing anything 24-7 100 years ago. Perhaps you've even gone the next step and talked about 365-24-7. Constant focus upon other things being bombarded. And one of the results of this is an inability to think deeply about issues. We see this apart from ourselves, don't we? One of the main areas in which we lament about this is politics. Everything is sound bites, we say. Everything must be put in 20-second snippets. No one wants to talk about the issues. The only problem is... When someone shows up to give a two-hour lecture on an issue, crickets show up. We're too busy. We're focused upon other things. We have so many things to do. And it makes it hard to think deeply. You parents can especially understand this. It's very difficult to think deeply about important issues in your home. When about every 45 seconds, someone walks up and tugs on your shoulder and says, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad, can I? Yes, son, go ahead. But Dad, can I? But Dad, do you know? But Mom, right? Now, for children, this is because they have a shorter attention span and and they need more help with things than adults do. But have you ever found yourself saying, I can't even hear myself think. Could you please just go sit somewhere for a minute so I can figure out who I am? This happens. But this doesn't just happen in the house. It happens when we try and focus upon prayer. 
It happens when we try to read our Bibles. It happens when we try to think about what we have read in our Bibles. Our modern life it draws us away from focusing on the Bible, God, and our own purpose. Paul also highlights this for us because this idea of forming a habit of our thoughts, of being focused, is critical to the Christian life. You'll notice that he begins this passage finally. Now, you've seen this before, and I've already reminded you that this is not Paul using the preacher's habit of saying, in conclusion, six times. This is a transition from one passage to another. We might actually, to sum up, we might say, or I need your attention here, or in conclusion in the sense of let me highlight and underline this thought. This phrase here at the beginning is pointing to the fact that this is a climax kind of verse. It is frameable for a reason. If we are to know the peace of God, if we are to make peace with one another, if we are to stand firm in the faith, if we are to focus our lives upon Jesus Christ, we must have minds that are focused. We must focus upon these things. They don't happen by themselves. Paul's giving a bit of a primer here as to what we are to do. And the rhetorical effect is intentional. The whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, till the sixth point that makes us uncomfortable. It's a rhetorical device that Paul is using to impress upon us how important this is. And what's important is that we are to give more focus to these things. We'll look at the things in a moment, but I want you to think about the focus. He lists these things we are to think about, and he says, we are to think about these things. Now, if you have been following and perhaps taking some notes as we've talked about this verb think throughout Philippians, you might say to yourself, oh, this is where the pastor is going to remind us again that this is Paul's favorite word for think. It has this idea of feel, you know, where Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way about you in my heart. It implies and it has thought and, it, and we're to, to give ourselves to it. That must be what this word means. No. But you would expect that because that's Paul's favorite word for think. He intentionally doesn't use it. He uses kind of an odd word for a very specific reason. He uses a Greek verb that is from a noun that I can even say and you all know. It is the verb from the noun logos or logos. Word, idea, think. We get logic from it. And what Paul says is, you are to think hard about this, logically about this. Actually, think isn't even strong enough translation. You are to focus your mind, Paul says. You are to meditate. Evaluate these things. Put them on the scales. Regard them. You are to pour energy into this kind of thinking. This is not a passing thought. You are to pour your mind and your effort into the evaluation of these things. You are to meditate. Now, I know as soon as I say the word meditate in our society, I need to explain it a bit. Because in our society, what meditate means is that you sit in a pretzel position and empty out your mind and chant things in an effort to block out all kinds of thoughts. 
That is not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is more like the Hebrew version of this word. That You may have even heard this example. It's chewing something over and over and over again from one side of your mouth to the other. You might think of the cow that has multiple stomachs to digest food. You are to think about these things through multiple compartments of your mind, chewing them, regurgitating them back up, chewing them down again, back and forth. Not so fun with food, good with ideas. You don't put them down and put them in a corner. You think about them over and over again. It is a thought, a type of thinking that provokes us to action. And Paul gives a very specific kind of command here. It is, it is not a suggestion to think. It is a command to think. And it is a present command. You must be doing this continually, all the time. You must focus your mind upon these things, not simply when it is convenient, not simply when you think you have the energy you are to focus your minds upon these things and you will gain energy. You will gain focus. You will gain purpose. More focus is needed, but at the same time, we need less anticipation. What do I mean by that? I think oftentimes we approach the Christian life as a life of anticipation. I wonder what God will bring my way this day. I wonder if God will speak to me somehow this day. I need to be open to what God will do and bring. The only problem is, that's not really how biblical Christianity works. We are to look forward to what God will do, but the way in which we live our lives is not wondering and anticipating what will come and hoping to deal with it like some kind of goalie in a hockey game with pucks flying at him. No, the way in which we live the Christian life is to look back and think about what God has done and what He has already told us in His Word so that we can be deliberate about our lives. question then comes to you. I'm sure that you've given some measure of planning and deliberation to your children's education, repairs around the house, projects at work. Are you deliberate do you plan Christian growth? Do you focus upon what will cause you to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if so, what does that look like? Do you plan your prayer life? Or do you think, well, no, prayer is only supposed to be spontaneous. If I planned my prayer life, that wouldn't be real prayer now, would it? Yes, it would. Do you plan not just the reading of Scripture, but how you will read it? in large sections, in small sections, in the Old Testament, in the New? Do you think about what will cause you to grow at the place in life that you are at right now? Do you think and plan for your life? Or perhaps, for many of us spiritually, we carry forward the error that we see of others around us who are sitting around waiting for life to happen. Have you seen people do that? They're waiting for things to happen to them. They're bored. It's Saturday. And the kids are lounging around on the couch and on the chair, and they don't know what to do. Now, all week, all they could think of getting to was Saturday because there's no school, because there's no work. And now that Saturday's here, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. I'm bored. What should we do? Well, 
I don't know. I haven't given it any. Wait a minute. All week you wanted to get to Saturday. You didn't give any thought to what you would do on Saturday? Well, no. I just thought something would come up and it would be fun. You see, we can do that with the Christian life if we're not careful. I just thought I would become better at prayer. I, ju- I just thought that I would become a better Bible scholar. I just thought that Jesus would become more real to me in my life. No. Don't sit around waiting for the Christian life to happen. This is the habit of our thoughts. But then Paul tells us what this habit is to be applied to. You see, it's not just simply a vacuum. There are objects that our thoughts are to be applied to. The first thing he says is, whatever is true. Now, that means several things. It means whatever has integrity, whatever is whole, whatever is right or correct. But it also means to focus upon things that are dependable and real. You see, we don't help ourselves by focusing upon things that aren't within the realm of reality. I will tell you that I do not sit around wistfully dreaming about what will happen when I'm a United States senator. It's not a real thought. But I do think about and plan about what I will do when my children are in college. Or what will happen next summer here at the church. Or how I can improve my prayer life. Or how I can learn additional ways to study the scriptures. Think about things that are dependable, that are real, that are real for you. Because once you begin to focus upon things that are true and real, your focus will stay there. And of course, the thing that is most true and the thing that is most real is the Lord God himself and his gospel. Focus upon the truth of God's word, how God's word never changes, how it never lies, how it is never wrong. We use the word inerrant for a reason. I don't know if you've noticed that. Whenever I read the scripture, I describe for you the character of the scripture, and I always say it is inerrant because it always is. It is true. Focus your mind upon things that are true. But also focus your mind upon whatever is honorable. This is a very interesting word. It it carries the connotation of being serious. It is used of deacons and their wives in 1 Timothy 3. They are to be honorable. They are to be serious, dignified. It is to focus your mind upon things that are worthy of focus, worthy of reverence. The person who focuses upon honorable things dreads superficiality and flippancy. Have you ever... Now, a good joke is good every once in a while. But have you ever had occasion to have an acquaintance that could never be serious? That everything was a joke? Everything was flippant? Especially, perhaps, maybe you know someone who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and for him, Jesus was a joke. Jesus was a flippant matter. You see, Christians are not called to a life of flippancy. We are called to a life of seriousness, of focusing upon things that are honorable, that are worthy, because life is important. We're to focus upon things that lift our mind up. Have you ever had the experience of looking out off a cliff or a mountain and seeing the trees and the streams and perhaps a sunset beyond you? And you look at it and you just think to yourself, This is majestic. 
And then you wonder, you say, I don't normally use the word majestic. But, but it really is. That's the type of things that you are to focus your mind upon. Things that lift up your heart. Things that focus you upon the majesty of God's creation and the Lord God himself. Things not only that are true, but things that are honorable, majestic. Paul says we should think about things that are just. That means things that are according to God's standard. Not according to the world's standards. We don't put our thumb on the scale. We don't worry about things that are fudged. We focus our hearts and our minds upon what God says is true and real. We don't think about things that are harmful to others or defrauding of others or defrauding or harmful to ourselves because that breeds bitterness. Instead, we focus our minds upon things that are just, that God has laid forth for us. The fourth item that Paul lays forth are things that are pure. And this has the main idea of a moral cleanliness. Have you ever had someone say to you, or perhaps you've had occasion to say to someone else, would you please take your mind out of the gutter? And then have you ever wondered why the gutter is described for that? As you're thinking about that, maybe you're thinking about the gutter of an alley, or maybe... Like me, you don't get to cleaning out your gutters every six months or every year when you finally get up on the ladder or someone else gets up on the ladder and you pull out the pine needles and the mud and the ugh. And you don't even want to do it. You get gloves and the gloves get all wet, soggy and muddy and it's just disgusting. We could do that with our minds. We could focus upon things that are dirty, degrading, impure, and that doesn't just have to be what we would ordinarily think. It could be thinking about the things of the world that can be said in mixed company, but are still impure, drag us down, push us away from the love of God in Christ. Things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely. What does it mean, things that are lovely? Does that mean that if we have some wonderful flowers on a table, that we should, we should think about flowers and, and puppies and kittens and uh, other such f- lovely and cute things? No. Well, you could focus on things. They certainly wouldn't be impure. But what Paul means here is to focus upon things that actually cause love in us, that they create delight in us, things that are pleasing in their very self, things that are attractive by their very nature, things that cause us to be uplifted, to dwell upon our Lord Jesus Christ, to dwell upon the many blessings that he has given to us. Are you noticing a pattern here? Each one of these things is a way to focus us not just upon the things themselves, but ultimately upon the Lord Jesus. This is loveliness in the sense that perhaps you've heard this word used, winsome. I often wonder whether anyone outside of reform circles ever uses the word winsome. It's kind of a perfect 18th century word. And the reason we use the word winsome is because we are so concerned about bowling people over reform theology. You had someone walk up to you and in a lesson say, would you please be more winsome with the truth? And you think, what? Winsome, lose some? What? 
And after you've been in a Reformed church a while, you understand what it is. And even if you're eight or nine, you can define winsome. But in reality, this is an important part of all of our lives. It's not just a church thing. It's a work thing. It's a family thing. It's a neighborhood thing. And what winsome means is to have something shown in all of its beauty and loveliness that it is delightful to others, that it causes delight. You see, the sovereignty of God, for example, that doctrine should cause rapture and delight in people. To know that the world is not spinning out of control. To know that there is not something that will happen to them that is random or without reason. To know that a loving, caring, almighty, omniscient, omnipotent God holds everything in the palm of his hand. That lets you put your head on the pillow at night, doesn't it? This is a winsome doctrine. And we are called in our lives to be winsome, to provoke love in others. And the way that we begin doing that is by focusing our minds upon it. A closely related word is this next word, commendable, which means well spoken of. It's actually two Greek words put together. It means things that spread a good opinion of themselves. It's We might think of it as the antidote to gossip. We think about things that spread a good opinion. We think about things that cheer our hearts. And when we think about them, we live them, we speak about them, we dwell on them. These are the things that we are called to think about, to meditate upon. And then Paul follows up this list seemingly repeating himself by saying, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. This reminds us of the end of our thoughts, not just the habit of our thoughts, not just the end of our thoughts, but now the end of our thoughts. And the first end of our thought is excellence. Now, what do we mean by excellence? Well, first of all, excellence allows us to fight bad and trivial thoughts because we have to have something to actually focus on. You cannot push out or crowd out bad thoughts with nothingness. Some of you have seen the the famous counseling session that has been given in less than two minutes by Bob Newhart. Something wrong with you? Stop it! But you see, no, stop it! But stop it. Now, that's very true. But how do you stop something when you already know you are supposed to stop it? As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand the call of the Scriptures. We understand the commands of God. We think upon them. We dwell upon them. And like Paul, we say, the good that I would do, I don't do. And that what I would not do, I do. You need to have something that draws us away from that. And that are these good and commendable things that are laid before us. Things of excellence. Things that we focus upon as an end in ourselves. Now, this word here for excellence is a very, very deep word. I've heard it said, and I hope that it is true and would encourage it, that one of the founding principles of Christ's church is that we do all things with excellence. We try to. That's certainly appropriate. And that evokes in me and perhaps in you an idea of things being done properly, 
of things being done orderly, of things being done well, of time being spent in them. That's all true. But this biblical word for excellence goes beyond that. It goes beyond well done. It goes to well done and according to purpose. This is perhaps the richest word in all of the Greek language. And it is only used several times in the New Testament. And what it means is the characteristic of being according to your fundamental purpose. So, for example, the excellence of a racehorse is not pulling a plow well. Although maybe he could. The excellence of a racehorse is running like the wind, the mane flapping in the breeze, leading the pack on all four legs. Perfect timing, swiftness personified. The excellence of a plow horse is not winning a race, although perhaps he might. It's using all strength and effort to get the job done perfectly. What's the excellence of man? Philosophers have said different things. To know wisdom. To serve others. What is the excellence of your purpose? Do you know? Perhaps it's your ability to speak. Perhaps it's your physical ability. Perhaps it's your judgment. No. For every single one of us, the excellence that is laid before us is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is your purpose. If there is any purpose or excellence in you, if you desire to glorify God, if you desire to enjoy Him forever, think on whatever is true. Think on whatever is honorable. Think on whatever is pure, just, commendable. If there's any excellence at all you strive for, Paul says, think on these things. That's the end of our thoughts, to think about them for the excellence and the praise of our Lord. This is the way we are to think about things. This is thinking biblically. Then Paul moves in verse 9 to what that looks like in our lives, growing biblically. He begins first by describing instruction. Because you see, we don't just keep things in our mind. They must come out into our lives, affecting us and others. And so he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Now, I want you to notice something. Paul has moved from the general, whatever, to the specific. These things, what, what you've seen. He's moving from the general to the specific, and he's trying to be as exhaustive as possible. He does, again, one of these rhetorical tricks that almost makes us uncomfortable. We want to get out our red editor's pen and, and change this verse. Don't you know, Paul, that when you have a list, you don't need to put and between every item of the list. You put it before the last one, right? Why do you say, Paul, learned and received and heard and seen? It's because he's trying to be as comprehensive as possible. The instruction incorporates all of these things. And the first pair of verbs here, the first pair of things, focuses upon the teaching and learning aspect. 
He says, whatever, excuse me, he says, what you have learned and received. And the learned here is a learning through instruction, through hard work. Word is the word we get mathematics from. It is difficult work. It must be written on a blackboard. Have any of you tried to do, even those of you that are good at math, long, complex math equations in your head? No way. You get out, just like the guy on numbers, you get out the blackboard and you fill it up with every symbol and sometimes you have two blackboards and sometimes three blackboards, right? You have to actually work at it. You have to work hard at it. That's what Paul says. Those things that you have learned, that I have put in front of you, that have been difficult, that have been hard, but that you have mastered, those are the things that you are to be instructed in, that you are to have your life changed by. These things that are learned, but it's also things that are received. And received here refers again to formal teaching. It might even refer to traditions. This might be the first reference to a catechism. It's instruction that has been received and worked on. It might look something like what Paul says in the book of Acts, chapter 20. He says in verses 20 and 21, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of instruction that Paul has given. It's the kind of instruction that you must master. You must think on these main things of the scriptures that have been taught. The focus here is upon teaching. But we don't end with teaching. At least Paul won't let us. He then moves to patterning. The second fit pair focus upon modeling, focus upon living. He says not only the things you have learned and received, but the things you have heard and seen in me. It implies Paul living a life that is open. It's like what John says in his first letter. Those things that we have seen, that we have heard, that we have touched. Those are the things that we know. There is to be no disconnect between preaching and living. It's one of the reasons why I think we often get so upset when we watch televangelists who preach fire and brimstone and we know they are bilking old ladies out of money. It upsets us. They're not living what they say. The same is true for you and for me as we go out and about in our societies, as we're at work, as we're at school. We must live what we say. We must live what we know. Have you thought about, do others see your character? Or do you need to explain to them that you're a member of a church? Do others know about your integrity, or do you need to explain to them biblical principles of integrity? You see, those principles should be lived out on your sleeve. Others should know your character by what you do, not just by what you say. This is how we grow. And this is the difference between theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge. You need both in the Christian life. You cannot divorce living from teaching. You cannot divorce teaching from living. 
You must have both. You must apply it in your life so that others can see it. It would be like trying to learn how to play basketball by never setting foot on a court, by just reading books about it. I'm sure I could make a jump shot. I've read every book in the library on technique. It would be like saying, well, you know, I don't need anyone to show me how to build a house. I've read some construction books. I think I can do that. No. You need someone standing next to you saying, no, you hit the hammer here, not here. No, you need this many nails. I know what the book says. You need this many nails. Right? That's what the Christian life is like. Following a pattern, living it out. And then finally, we must apply these truths to our life. There must be application. Thinking correctly is important. Learning is important. Following others is important. But you know what? It's not enough. We must practice. We must do all of these things in our life so that they become a pattern of life. We must practice thinking about things that are true, not once, not twice, not a dozen times, not 50 times, not a 100 times, not even a 1,000 times. 10,000 times 10,000. Every single day, over and over and over and over again. And that focuses our minds upon the truth of God. And it focuses our minds upon the provision of God. Paul gives us an example of that right here in verse 9. Do you notice what he does? He says at the very end here, the God of peace will be with you. It's interesting. Paul uses this phrase twice in Romans, once here, once in 1 Thessalonians, and once, if, if Daryl's convinced you that he's written Hebrews, once in Hebrews. You wondered why Paul would use this phrase over and over again? Stop and think about Paul's life. Was Paul's life peaceful? Was Paul's life a life of ease? What could Paul have focused upon? Beatings? Being driven out of towns? People trying to hurt him? People speaking badly about him? People lying about him? Does Paul focus on these things? No. He focuses upon what's true, who God is what's honorable, what's just, that God is a God of peace, what's lovely, what's commendable in his own life, that God will bring him peace. So you see, this morning, if you are struggling with something, whether it is your health or relationships, or whether it is your knowledge or the future, the solution to this is to focus upon the things that God would point you to. You see, habits are important. What kind of habits are you cultivating today? Do you take opportunities to cultivate godly habits? Do you seize upon opportunities to think, to practice, to do, to live out things that are honorable, true, just, commendable? things that God has laid out before you? Or instead, are you tempted like so many around us to look for what's new and exciting, to go from one thrill to the next, one emptiness to the next? You see, habits of the Christian life 
habits of things that are good, blessing, just. These are what drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one such habit this morning. We're going to gather around the same table, the same kind of bread, the same kind of drink, the same kind of fencing, the same kind of comments, the same kind of music. But there's a richness in it. It's a habit that reminds us every single day to look to Jesus. There's a habit to prayer. There's a habit to reading the scripture. Cultivate these habits. Cultivate this way of thinking. Cultivate this way of acting. And God will bless you. The God of peace you will know. He will point you to his son who is above all things the ultimate culmination of these kinds of whatever things.